This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 118. Are you ready? You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc. I'm really excited that you're here to learn about apartment building investing. Actually, today, we're not really going to learn about apartment building investing. We're going to learn about something a little different, which is investing in cannabis real estate. That's exactly right. So this is huge industry, and it's already pretty big, and it's projected to be huge, like $60 billion per year, huge, in about seven years. So it's a huge growing industry because of the legalization of cannabis, obviously, and the demand behind it. And of course, when you have operations, both in cultivation and growing, you need, guess what? Real estate. So on the show with me today is Leslie Pletner, and she's going to give us an introduction to cannabis investing. And before we get into that, I just want to mention, just because sometimes people say, hey, Michael, you have all this great free content out there. You have this podcast. I love it. YouTube channel, you know, the blog is fantastic. So I just want to remind people that we do have all kinds of training available to you guys. The big one is the ultimate guide to buying apartment buildings with private money. And it's all about everything you need to know from analyzing to raising money. I spend most of the time talking about raising money and analyzing deals in that course. It comes with the syndicated deal analyzer, probably the most popular multifamily analysis tool on the planet by this point. So it comes with that course. With that course also, you get six months of our DealMakers Mastermind, which is an online community to connect with each other, but also to give you feedback on your analysis. How do you know you're doing it right? So you upload your analysis and you get feedback from a live person on that. You also get two tickets to our Financial Freedom Summit, which we do twice a year. And that's where you get to experience buying a 69 unit. So you can be working in small groups of five. And over the course of a weekend, you're going to go through doing the entire deal from start to finish. So if you want to find out more about that, go to themichaelblank.com forward slash products and check that out. All right. So with no further ado now, let's get into the interview with Leslie Plettner on cannabis real estate investing. Here we go. Hey, Leslie, welcome to the show today. Hey, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your company. Sure. I will start by talking a bit about my company first and then myself. So Base Canna is creating a cannabis ecosystem by connecting operators to each other and patients and clients. So we anchor the development of our ecosystem to and with real estate. So in addition to providing a space to manufacture, cultivate, test, distribute, and dispense, we support the legal insurance and accounting needs of our operator members. And we believe that the healing and transformative properties of cannabis can make the world a more joyful and inspired place to live. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So that's your company. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this a little bit. I've been an entrepreneur since I was in middle school. And as a professional, I took my entrepreneurial interest into the field of education. I designed new schools and transformed underperforming schools. And then once I decided to have a family, I shifted my entrepreneurial spirits to the world of real estate. And I started a real estate development company in 2009 called Kimba Home. And then about three years ago, actually in June of 2015, I realized that the cannabis industry was going to be emerging and expanding and that there was a real need for cannabis-friendly landlords. And so I haven't looked back since. And I've been in the cannabis real estate space since then. Some of these operations, maybe you can talk about that, you know, are fairly large, but it doesn't matter. They all require real estate. And you send landlord friendly real estate because not everyone is actually on board with the whole operation. And so there's a real estate problem. And you said, hey, you know what? There's a real estate problem I can help solve. 
So talk a little bit about the scope of what you do when you say we provide real estate for cannabis operations. What does that entail? What do you do then? Base Canna, we are designing an ecosystem. So we're very mindful to try to make sure that we connect operators to each other. And so we develop campuses throughout California. We have other states that we're looking into, but our primary focus right now is developing our cannabis ecosystem. And it can be challenging for operators, I think, to be successful in, in the long term. We can develop a vertically integrated model and support you know, cultivators to have access to manufacturers and manufacturers have access to biomass and trim and to try to develop a vertically integrated ecosystem from seed to sale, our tenant members are more likely to be successful, which means they're more likely to pay our rent. And so we're looking for opportunities. Getting licenses and real estate is definitely one of the harder parts of becoming successful in this space. And so we're doing the hard work of finding municipalities, of vetting real estate, and then, of course, of vetting operators to qualify for our ecosystem. So this is buy and hold real estate, if I'm not mistaken, right? You're finding the real estate, you're buying the real estate, you're getting the permits for real estate so that you can lease it to an operator. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. So is there anything I left out in that that you need to do in order to actually put a successful tenant in there and make sure they pay the rent? No. You know, we definitely qualify our tenant operators and we go through quite a vetting process, which, you know, I can talk about in greater detail a little bit later once I think you understand the market opportunity. You're obviously in this because you feel like the market, the potential is there. How do you assess the opportunity here? Well, here's the one thing that I have found that's been really useful for real estate investors to understand. This is the fastest growing market since broadband internet in the early 2000s. And I won't go into great detail here, but more and more people are learning about the therapeutic value of cannabis. Cannabis treats dozens and dozens of illnesses and disease. And so there are a lot more people that are actually using cannabis. In fact, according to the CDC, the monthly cannabis use from 2002 to 2012 increased by 50%. For those people ages 45 through 54, a staggering 455% for those ages 55 to 64, and senior citizens' growth has increased by 333%. So there's just a huge expansion in use, and there's also been quite an expansion in states that are regulating and adopting cannabis regulations. There are 30 states now, and the District of Columbia that are regulating for medical cannabis. And there's actually, you know, 24 ballot initiatives that are in the process right now. Not all of them will get on the ballot in 2018, but you know when Nebraska and Utah, <laughs> you know, are looking to actually regulate cannabis, that there's been a shift. There's also been a shift in the way Americans feel about cannabis. 64% support legalization, 93% support medical consumption. And so that is creating a real demand for real estate because cannabis operators, they have to get licensed in order to be operational. They have to get a license to cultivate, manufacture, distribute, dispense, test, and hold events. And in order to get that license, you must have real estate. So that creates the real estate. That's where the real estate moment is. And that's where you and come in, obviously, right? If I'm an operator of any business, whether it's a restaurant or a nightclub, you know, I'm not thinking real estate, right? I want to be able to find a space, sign a lease and be done with it. Is that kind of where you come in, where you say, I have the space, I have the permitting, you know, here's a lease, go ahead and sign, you can operate your business. Is that what you do? 
Yeah, we do a little bit more than that because we're supporting our tenant, you know, members, our members to be successful. And there is a significant overhead because this is a regulated, a highly regulated market, especially in California. And so a lot of operators, they're masterful and artists in cultivation or manufacturing, but they don't necessarily have the experience of working in such a highly regulated market. So we're finding by providing support around compliance and legal issues and accounting and insurance, that that's a level of support that really supports our tenant members to be successful. And of course, if they're successful, they will continue paying the rent. So it's a win-win for everybody, really. And that's fantastic. Yes, it's a win-win for everybody. Absolutely. All right. So I see the opportunity, uh, Leslie, but you know, what are kind of the risks? I think you're going to tell us that there are certain risks. Some of them are, are real and some of them are perceived or they're myths. Can you talk about maybe some risks that are myths that actually aren't really risks, but people think they are? Absolutely. A lot of real estate investors and landlords are concerned about having potheads as tenants. And quite frankly, if you are successful in getting a license and working in a regulated market that is very compliant oriented, you are a professional business person. So that's just a myth. You're not going to run into potheads. The second myth is that a lot of landlords are concerned about criminal activity. UCLA, in fact, did a study and they, they looked at Los Angeles and Sacramento and I think Denver, and they looked at criminal activity around dispensaries. And what they found was that criminal activity around dispensaries actually decreased post-dispensary operations. And it's logical to understand that because dispensaries have a lot of security And so it scares criminals away. And the same can be said around these other campuses that are, you know, cultivating or manufacturing for cannabis. You know, the other big concern is civil asset forfeiture. Mm. And in California, Malcursa is our law, and it specifically states that landlords are protected from arrest, prosecution, or other sanctions under the state law, such as civil fine or civil or forfeiture of assets. So landlords are protected. As long as your tenant is complying with the law and has a license, the landlord is protected from civil asset forfeiture. Those are the perceived risks. There are some real ones. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are some more ones. Any kind of emerging industry like Airbnb, for example, there's real estate strategies around short-term rentals. Really exciting, but a lot of legislation is still new, a bit unknown, uncertain. What are some, in your assessment, what are some of the realer risks around this business that you need to mitigate? Sure. The real risks, one, you have to make sure that you are a landlord in a municipality that is regulating for cannabis. So you just have to make sure that your property can receive a license and pay attention to the municipality that you select. There have been examples of municipality overreach. Oakland, for instance, in its early phases of regulating, wanted to have a person from the city on your board. 25% of the landlord profit had to go to the city. 25% of the operational profit had to go to the city in exchange for the opportunity to get a license and regulate and have a cannabis operation. That is an example of a significant municipal overreach. So you have to pay attention to that. Oakland has since shifted, and we are looking at opening a campus in Oakland. But you have to pay attention to that. You have to pay attention to tax treatment. Another real risk, you have to make sure that your tenant has a license and that your tenant pays taxes. If your tenant's not paying taxes, 
then really quickly that's going to undermine their financial position and they will stop paying rent and they could get closed down and you know be the target of regulators. And how do so you, that how do you protect yourself against that? I mean, it sounds like you need to be somewhat involved in the operation or at least have visibility into the operation. How do you protect yourself from some of these things from happening? Well, in part, you do your due diligence and you vet your municipality. You vet your tenant operator. You qualify your tenant operator by doing one of two things. One, you see what kind of history they have working within the industry. Many of our members have more than two decades of experience working in the industry. We can see that they have two decades of experiences, you know, paying rent, you know, paying insurance and being successful business people. On occasion, we do look at operators who are newer to the industry, but we make sure that they've been accomplished in other industries. And it's very common because this industry is emerging that you're going to find operators that are newer to the, the industry. And we don't discount the fact they've been successful in other industries and are bringing that experience to them. Any other risks that uh, you need to be aware of? You have to pay attention to zoning. When you're looking for a property, you have to make sure that it's zoned properly. We had a property in contract and did our due diligence and found that the municipality literally changed its zoning a week before we got in the contract. And you know, we were able to, to, of course, get out of contract during our due diligence period. But you really have to make sure that whatever that property is targeted to do, whether it's cultivate or manufacture, that the zoning allows for that and the ordinance allows for that. I also want to talk about a real risk is this notion of green rush illusion. So, you know, a lot of people are really excited about cannabis, and they ought to be. I mean, it could be a $61 billion industry by 2028. It was a $9 billion industry last year. So there's a lot of money to be made. But green rush illusions can sometimes lead to being greedy as a landlord. And landlords need to understand that these are still businesses. They have really high overhead because of the 280E tax implications. And bottom line, they still have to pay, you know, their taxes and be successful. And so, you know, can you get a premium as a landlord? Absolutely. That's one of the reasons why I'm in the game. But you have to be careful about green rush illusions. And then OSHA is a serious concern. OSHA has been finding cannabis companies some to the degree where they've just wiped them out because the fines have been so high. Actually, I'm more concerned about OSHA than the federal government and federal prohibition. And that, Michael, federal prohibition, I think, is both a perceived and a real risk. If I understand correctly, federal government could change their laws you know, overnight and say, oh, no, we're going back to making all the stuff illegal or prohibiting everything. Why is that real on the one hand and why might it be a perceived risk? Let me offer, Michael, that I could literally spend the entire podcast in federal prohibition, but of course I won't. And in fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be uploading an explainer video that's going to talk about 19 facts of federal prohibition in a whiteboard explainer video. So it should be pretty fun. But these are the highlights. Generally, the more you know about federal prohibition, the less concerned you become. And here are the things to remember. There are currently federal protections that coexist alongside federal prohibition. So the Roar Brocker Blumenauer Amendment to the spending bill disallows the Department of Justice to spend any money persecuting cannabis businesses that are operating legally within their state. So essentially, as long as you're complying with the law, you have protections. The DOG has no money to go out and try to persecute you. You strengthen your position as an operator or investor 
by choosing a municipality that has an ordinance and is excited about the tax revenue. Trust me, that excitement like protects you. And you also trust yourself by developing relationships with zoning, building fire and police departments. Berkeley, in fact, was the first city in California to become a sanctuary city in February. They basically said, hey, anyone who, who's an operator here or a consumer, you're protected from any kind of federal action. It's important to remember that federal agents act with the cooperation of local authorities. And many municipalities have indicated no interest in cooperating with federal authorities if their operators are abiding by local law. So again, go to my website if you want to hear more about it. That's why I see it actually as more of a perceived than a real risk. Yeah, it, it appears that way. And the pendulum is still swinging towards you know, legalization, obviously. So the momentum is definitely headed in that direction. Though it's obviously with everything, any kind of new, you got to watch the legislation with, you know, keep an eye open for that. Now, you got to pay more attention to the operator than if you're leasing to retail tenants. Well, actually, even retail tenants, you have to pay attention to the operator and make sure they're strong. How do you decide which operators do you work with? And then what kind of real estate do you actually go after to put the two together? That's a great question. We first look at the market opportunity. So is this the right license and the right product in the right market? So we wouldn't, for instance, choose to invest. We were given this opportunity and we decided no. To invest in a 100,000 square feet manufacturing facility designed to process outdoor cannabis in the Bay Area. We said, you know what? A facility of that size for that function is more appropriately placed in further north in the Emerald Triangle. Like, for instance, another example is the profit margins in San Francisco for dispensing versus manufacturing. It's obvious that you would choose to dispense in San Francisco as the margins are not compressed. Whereas manufacturing, you know, land and building in San Francisco is very expensive. You can easily find cheaper land, cheaper building somewhere else and move that product into San Francisco. We look at the right product, you know, in the right market and the right property. That's kind of first how we qualify. Then, you know, you have to pay attention to what's happening overall in the cannabis market. The cannabis market is typically thought of in two different categories. You have flour and you have manufactured products. So flour is the actual bud that most people, maybe they, they roll in a joint or they consume it by smoking. And then manufactured products are topicals, tinctures, edibles, vape pens, for instance. And there's a trend where there is less demand for flour and growing demand for manufactured products. So we're really paying attention to what we anticipate the consumer demand and trends will be. And so we're pretty excited about manufacturing opportunities, knowing that there's going to be a continued demand. And the margins are first going to be compressed in cultivation. So we're super selective about cultivation opportunities that we look for because there's so much innovation happening in that space and the innovation and a large scale growing is really compressing wholesale prices. So the margin compression first is going to happen in cultivation. So we're really selective about those opportunities. Maybe we can talk about a, a little bit of a case study. So I'm all, always intrigued by buying a piece of real estate one way and then changing its use in another way and thereby boosting returns, right? So for example, in the Airbnb, I can buy a house, pay fair market value for it, and then almost double the income of that house because I'm changing its use to Airbnb or you know, changing an apartment building into a condo conversion. 
Is it something similar here? And if so, can you provide kind of examples of, for example, what kind of cap rates you're buying the real estate in and then what kind of returns you're seeing with regards average annual returns or cash and cash returns once you actually successfully stabilize a property with this new use? Can you talk to kind of what the before and after might look like? I especially can speak to the appreciation of a property once you reposition. We purchased a property in the Bay Area And we got it in contract about one week before the city passed cannabis regulations. The seller wasn't aware that the city was going to be regulating for cannabis. So we were able to lock the property up right before the regulations passed. And immediately after the regulations passed, while we were doing our due diligence, the broker was getting dozens of calls every day Hmm. trying to see if they could buy the property. You know, we luckily already had it in contract. The seller wanted to try to break the contract because he was aware that he didn't get a premium. So we purchased that parcel, two warehouses, about 20,000 square feet of space for $1.8 million, even before it was licensed. But knowing that that property could be licensed, we were getting you know, offers for two five, three million, And we actually just did an analysis now we have four licenses in that space and we're barely operational. The cultivation is just getting operational. The manufacturing isn't yet. You know, we're not showing great tenant roles right now, rent roles because of the operations, but still we have found that there's an appetite to purchase the building for four and a half million dollars just because it has licenses. So, okay, now that the cat's out of the bag, let's say in the Bay Area, you know, I wanted to get into this business. I would probably be paying, what, two and a half or so as this warehouse sits, right? Now knowing the legislation is there, two and a half million. And then once I get the permits, now that thing is worth four million. Is that order of magnitude? Is that right? Sure. And, you know, every market is different. Every market has its own, you know, micro market. But for this particular case study, yes, that is true. That's right. And what's mm-hmm. entailed in getting those permits? How long does it take? How much money does it take? And what's the probability of getting those permits? Well, (laughs) I can tell you that the attorney on our team, you know, would make a big sigh right now because there's a lot that's involved. You have to make sure that the applications are often 200 plus pages in length, you know, and as long as you're paying attention to the applications and you're providing enough information about standard operating procedures, SOPs, and you can demonstrate capacity And really, it's about developing relationships with zoning and building and fire and the police department. And once that happens, you know, the chances are really good that you're going to get a permit. How much does it cost and how long does it take to get all this? Well, that varies. You know, we have internal expertise on our team. I've heard, you know, lawyers charging anywhere between $40,000 to $75,000 to write and guide a team through an operating process, you know, a licensing process. So there is some risk involved. I mean, it's not unlike, say, you know, a development project where you need to get certain zoning or certain permits for something. You know, is it important to have a plan B if you buy something? Let's say you buy something that doesn't work out, that there's another use for it. Is there a way that you can mitigate the plan? Or when you actually buy something, you're pretty darn sure you're going to get what you're looking for with regards to zoning and permitting. You know, I always like to have, you know, two solid exits. And, you know, right now, the first opportunity is to create a campus that's operational. We make sure that we have enough capital where we can make that happen. If for some reason something, you know, shifts and we need to go to plan B, 
once there's licenses there, there's an immediate exit that makes sense because there's a demand and a premium that operators and other investors, you know, real estate or other will pay in order to get access to real estate that has a license. Yeah. That is fabulous. What else do you want to add about this whole thing? I think it's fascinating. Like I said, every time you take and you change a use for something, especially something that's new that comes about, it always fascinates me, people taking advantage of that. And what else have we not talked about? It's really important about maybe an investor who wants to get into this business either passively or actively. I want everyone to understand that real estate, and I would also say science, is the underpinning of this industry. And I want your listeners to really understand the size of this industry. So Michael, let me ask you a question. How how much do you think ice cream is an industry? What are annual sales of ice cream in the United States? I have no idea, but I think my my kids account for about a quarter of it. So how how big is the ice cream industry, Leslie? It's $5.1 billion. Oh yeah, I was pretty close then, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, movie, movie tickets are $11.1 billion annually in the United States, and beer is $106 billion. So in 2006, legal sales of cannabis was $4.5 billion, hmm. and it's projected to be somewhere between $31 to $61 billion by 2028. The size of this market is staggering, and the growth is staggering. Just the opportunity to participate in this industry is right now and this is the moment so i just want your listeners to understand the size of it the growth of it and then actually another piece that's important to understand is to understand how private money is juxtaposed against institutional money now institutional money isn't really in the game right now why federal prohibition okay so In some ways, that creates opportunities for private equity and LP money to get in the game and take advantage of this expanding industry. As the federal government continues to signal the end of federal prohibition, you will see more and more institutional money coming in. So it's important for your listeners to pay attention to that because right now there's a great opportunity, but the more and more we get further down the line of ending federal prohibition, that opportunity will close up, the premiums will go away, and institutional money will come in. Yeah, that's good advice, and it's rapidly changing. Leslie, if people want to connect with you or learn more, how do they do that? Well, I would encourage them to go to our website, that's uh, basecana.com, and sign up for our newsletter. We send a newsletter out probably once a month. We also are on LinkedIn. We do you know, educational posts on LinkedIn and other platforms daily. But if you don't want to hear that, you know, you just want a newsletter to get a general update, please sign up for the newsletter. You know, the other thing that I'd like your listeners to pay attention to is the speed of adoption. So as more counties in California regulate, you're going to see premiums of real estate starting to fall. So pay attention to that. Is there a premium to be had on real estate? Sure, but you have to know that there's a bubble within the cycle now, and the bubble will start to recede once there's more municipalities that are opening up for regulation. So I just had to get that in there, but people can find out more about 
our company at basecanada.com. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can also check out the projects that we're working on. We actually have a raise right now, a $5 million raise for a Grover Beach campus that we're doing. And there's a lot of exciting stuff that we're doing in California. All right, so guys, so if you want to learn more about the cannabis real estate business, go to basecanada.com. That's B-A-S-E-C-A-N-N-A.com and sign up for Leslie's newsletter. Hey, Leslie, thank you so much for coming on the show and presenting this new high growth industry for us. Really loved it. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Michael. All right, you guys. I hope you found that interesting. I certainly did. Every time something disruptive like that comes along, people will take advantage of it. And that's certainly what Leslie is doing. Really exciting stuff. Definitely watch it closer. Go to her website, basecana.com, B-A-S-E-C-A-N-N-A.com and subscribe to her newsletter and learn more about the cannabis real estate investing market. Also, if you haven't done so already, grab my free book. It's called Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building Deal. That's at themichaelblanc.com forward slash ebook. Also, mark your calendars for November 2nd through 4th. It's my next live event called Dealmaker Live. So something a little bit new. I haven't done this one before, but it's really all going to be about people talking about deals or people going to present live deals that they've done or about to do. And it's all about learning from actual people doing deals and networking. So mark your calendar for November 2nd through 4th. I don't have any more information except for that. So stay tuned. Just put it in your calendar. It's going to have to be a must-attend event. All right, you guys, appreciate it. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.